Alleluia! Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia! We say these words every Easter Sunday that Christ is risen, but I think too often we think of the resurrection as a past event, and it is that by all means, but for us it is one that has only future consequences. So yes, Jesus died, rose from the dead, and one day we will rise from the dead as well, but we like to put that reality in the future. And I think sometimes we forget that it has a present power. In Romans, and especially in chapters 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul is at pains to show us that through Christ's death and resurrection, we have been freed from the penalty of sin. That the wages of sin are death. We have all (coughs) sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve that penalty, but through Christ's death and resurrection... That penalty that was to fall on our shoulders has actually fallen on his. And because he's been raised to new life, we one day too will share in that new life. And that is true. And that is glorious. And we want to celebrate that on Easter. But getting here into chapter 6, Paul actually wants to say something more about the resurrection. That yes, it has this sort of future consequence for us, but there's a present consequence to the resurrection as well. It doesn't just remove the penalty of sin in our lives, but it removes the power of sin as well. Paul wants to go on to say that we are united to Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. It's not simply that we are forgiven, but we are that by all means, but we are also united to Jesus Christ. And this has consequences for us right here and right now. So let's take a look. You've got your Bibles in front of you. Um, they're the red ones. Uh, they say Holy Bible on them. We've got Holy Bibles for this church, not just regular ones. Um, I'm glad you thought that was funny. Some people don't think that's funny. <laughs> We're going to start in verse 1. We didn't read this verse. We're going to start in verse 1. And what Paul is doing is he is posing objections to his own arguments. And so he's made an argument in chapters 1 to 5, and and basically it would say something like, um, where sin increases, grace is there all the more. And so you get this idea that the more sin is there, the more God's grace is there. And you can certainly see that. You can imagine that. Somebody who's in the depths of sin, just the deepest and lowest places, would appreciate the grandeur of God's grace that much more. And so Paul then poses this objection to his argument. Here in 6.1, he says, What are we to say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we keep on sinning so that we can get more grace? Is that how this works? No, by no means should we do this. How can we who died to sin, still live in it. We cannot continue to sin, Paul is saying, because we have died to it. If we've accepted Jesus' forgiveness, if we've been freed from the penalty of sin, then we have also died to sin. We've died to the very sin that merited the penalty in the first place. Now, Some of you should be thinking, I know I'm thinking, died to sin. Well, 
I tried, but not quite. I'm not quite there. And we're going to get to that. What does that mean, to be dead to sin? And it doesn't mean that we're no longer sinning. But we're going to unpack that a little bit down the road. Um, and so what Paul goes on to say then is if we read, let's read verses 3 through 5 in chapter 6. So by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, the glory of the Father, we too might, in the new, might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What is Paul saying? Jesus Christ, in his death and his resurrection, does not only cover us in forgiveness and cover us in Jesus Christ. It does do that. And so you have this image of us being um, stained by sin and the whiteness and righteousness of Jesus Christ covering us so that when God looks at us, he sees a holiness that is not our own, a holiness that belongs to Jesus Christ. It does do that, but it also does more. It unites us to Jesus. So not only are we covered by him, but we're actually hidden in him. We are brought into him and hidden in Jesus Christ. And so Paul's point is this. We're united first in the death of Jesus and then in his resurrection. Followers of Jesus are united to him both in his death and in his resurrection so that we can be freed from the power of sin. That's what's happening in our passage this afternoon or this evening. So what do these things mean? Um, very briefly, united to his death and then united in his resurrection. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. What is Paul talking about, this old self being crucified? Well, what he's talking about is a change, a change in headship, a change in kingship, a change in our status. The way we were born, we were born as children of Adam, right? Children of Adam and Eve, sinful. They sinned first, we inherited, that is our status as children of Adam and Eve. And so what Paul says that mean is, means is if Adam is our head, if this old man, this old sinful man is, is the one that we are descended from, if that's our status, then we are slaves to sin. We don't have a choice except to sin. That's our only choice. Sometimes we talk about free will and that, that somehow God has given us the freedom to choose him. But we don't even really have that ability either. When we are born, when we are under Adam, the only choice we have is which type of sin we want to commit. That's the, that's the choice you have. Now, you might do good things. You might do 
positive things. Certainly there are people out there who don't know Jesus who are doing very good things. But if they're not being done for the glory of Jesus Christ, then they're not holy things. And that's a hard thing to come to grips with. But the status we were born in is a status of sin. It only, the only way we can get out of that is a divine and sovereign act of God. We are born under the old man. But, Paul says, we have been united in the death of Christ. This old self is crucified with Christ. It doesn't just mean the part of us that's sinful gets crucified while the rest of us hangs out. There's no part of us that's not sinful, right? All of us must be united to Christ in His death. We must be crucified with Him. And so the great theologian Karl Barth writes this, that Jesus died for us does not mean that we do not have to die but that we have died in and with Him. That as the people we were, we have been done away with and destroyed. That we are no longer there and we have no future. For Tyler Prescott to be united with Christ, it means that I have to be done away with and destroyed. Mark Greenslip, Pam Helker, Brent Bishop, You must die, done away with, destroyed, united with Christ in his death so that we can also be united with him in his resurrection. And that is the second point that Paul wants to make. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. We are united to Jesus Christ in his resurrection. And then Paul goes on and he tells us what this looks like. And so the first thing he says there in chapter 9, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. It is finished for Jesus. I think we often pay lip service to that, and we like to say that, but do we really know the implications of that? If this Jewish carpenter who was crucified, if those disciples came to his tomb three days later and he was gone, and then he appeared to Mary Magdalene, then he had appeared to the eleven, what does that mean? I'm going to tell you two things. First of all, it validates everything that Jesus ever said and did. Everything he ever said and did is brought home in the resurrection. Often we read the Bible and especially read the words of Jesus, but when when I talk about everything he ever said and did, I mean this whole book is about him. So the resurrection validates that. And we read it. And we like to decide, right, if we agree with it or not. And some parts we're like, yeah, I'm on board with that. And some parts are like, well, you know, maybe not so much. And, and it's hard, and there are certainly cultural issues to work out, and there are nuanced ways to read our Bibles. But we like to decide, you know, do we really, what, what do we think about what Jesus said? And, and sometimes we like to pick the good parts and leave the bad parts behind. 
But if he rose from the dead, whether we like what he said or not is not the question. The only question for the Christian is, did Jesus rise from the dead or is he still buried and his bones are somewhere in Israel? That's the question you have to decide for yourself. If his bones are still buried somewhere, who cares, right? It's actually kind of crazy. And he died. So what? But if he rose from the dead, that changes everything. He is who he said he was. And what he did really matters. And what he's calling us to do, to die, to give up our lives, to serve him, to know his grace, to know his forgiveness, to know the power of a life lived in the forgiveness of God, that means everything if he rose from the dead. The second thing about his resurrection, it's the beginning of something new and amazing. Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first one to rise from the dead. We all expect one day to rise from the dead. But, but, but do we understand what this means? C.S. Lewis writes about the apostles that they understood for sure. What the apostles thought they had seen was the first movement of a great wheel beginning to turn in the direction opposite to that which, that which all men hitherto had observed. The direction of life is pretty obvious, right? We're born, we live, we die, we're buried. But the apostles saw this man buried, raised from the dead. And he is more alive than any of us are right now, than anybody else ever has been. And that, friends, is our destiny. That we would have that life. That, um, what does it say in the Lord of, Ring, Lord of the Rings? That everything sad is going to come untrue. That all of the evil, all of the sin, all of the despair, that Jesus Christ is winding that back. And he's saying, this is not true. This is false. I am the Lord. It is all coming undone. Now, let's read verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin. Does that sound familiar? From verse 2, Paul says, Have we not also died to sin? For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What does it mean for Jesus Christ to die to sin? Now, Jesus didn't sin. So it's not like he had sins in his life that he had to lay aside, that he had to put down. And so it must mean something different than that. Um, what it does mean is not so much that he was a sinner, but that he faced the same sinful temptations that we did. He lived fully as a man, and so everything that we are challenged with day in and day out, those things we fail at day in and day out, Jesus Christ was challenged with them as well. He faced those same temptations. And Paul said, Jesus died to that. He said, this is not who I am. This is not the route I'm going. I am going to die to this life so that I may live this one in obedience to God. And now, through his death, and his resurrection, 
He no longer faces that. That temptation is not there. And so it will be with us one day when we're raised from the dead. This temptation will not be there. Jesus Christ now lives to God. He doesn't have to die to sin day in and day out. He's living fully and perfectly for God. And so then verse 11, Paul gives us some homework. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If we know Jesus Christ, if we know his resurrection power, if we know his love, if we know his forgiveness, then we can die to sin. Those things we face day in and day out, Christ has given us the power through his resurrection, through the sending of his Holy Spirit, to live a new life, to live differently, to be different people, to go out into this world and people look at you and they say, man, you're weird. What is wrong with you? Why are you not doing these things? And you say, because I know Jesus Christ. Consider yourself dead to sin. Because we have a new head. We're not under Adam anymore, friends. That man has been put to death. We're under Jesus Christ. The one who is perfectly obedient to God, who died for us, and who now lives a life for God. So let me um, land this plane. Here, I think, is a mistake we tend to make from time to time as Christians. We want to say sometimes, I feel like, I sort of hear this, that knowing Jesus' forgiveness is like the first step. But if we really want to follow Jesus, we've got to get beyond that. We've got to get to the meat of Christianity that says we need to live like Jesus and be like him and, and show his love out in the world like Jesus does. Somehow that, that second step is better or more holy. And, and if we only get past the first part, if we can get through the cross into the life of the Holy Spirit, then we're really got it. Then we are really and truly Christians. That's just not how it works. And you know that. I mean, I can sit here all evening and tell you to consider yourself dead to sin, but that doesn't change the fact that every single person in here is going to sin tomorrow, if you're lucky to make it that far. We can't die to sin in the way that we are called to. Over time we can, but we can't just do it. It's not a snap of a finger. The first step, receiving forgiveness, to me, that's the only step. And we just sit there and we bathe in that, in that forgiveness. And when we do that, we realize the depth of God's grace, the depth of his mercy. And over time, you know, two, three, four, ten years down the road, the sins we were struggling with, maybe we're not struggling with anymore. But I guarantee you, you'll have five or six new ones that have popped up in the meantime. It's always a process of being united to Christ, dying to sin, realizing you've got some more, dying to that sin, and continuing on and on. The more we realize how much forgiveness we actually need, the bigger the grace of God becomes in us. The more we realize how much forgiveness we actually need, the bigger the grace of God is in us. I want to close with this illustration. This is, um, I borrowed this from Martin Luther. Imagine a homeless woman on the streets of Somerville. 
probably hiding in the woods. Now imagine a prince who lives in the time of princes. Imagine a prince who lives in the woodlands, goes and he finds this woman. And he says, I want to marry you. I want you to be my princess. I want you to be my bride. I want you to come back to the palace with me. Overnight, this woman's life has been totally changed. She's no longer homeless. She's no longer searching for food. She's no longer destitute. She's a princess. Overnight. But, you don't automatically start behaving like a princess just because you become one overnight. What is a salad fork? Why do we have three knives at the table? Right? Or maybe it's worse. May, is this true or not? Maybe I need to hoard as much food as I can. Who knows when I will be back on the street? Maybe she's completely uncertain. She doesn't know what to do with this prince who has called her home. The only remedy for that is the prince to look her in the eye time and time again and say, I love you. You are my bride. You are my princess. And I love you. And over time, she's going to learn about the salad fork. Over time, she's going to know she doesn't need to hoard the food. But just because her status changed overnight doesn't mean her behavior does. It's a long and growing process by we're dying to sin, dying with Jesus day in and day out, and being raised to new life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that you've erased the penalty of sin for those who believe in you. And thank you, Lord, that you are stripping sin of its power in our life. May your Holy Spirit abound in us this Easter season. We would share with you in your resurrection. And hope and wait and pray for that glorious day when we will be raised with your Son, Jesus, and given new bodies. And it is in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen.